everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Kimberly Marlowe Hartnett, a former journalist and writer, here to talk about her new book, Carolina Israelite, How Harry Golden Made Us Care About Jews, the South, and Civil Rights, published this year by the University of North Carolina Press. Kimberly, welcome to New Books and Jewish Studies. Hi. Glad to have you on the show. So, Harry Golden, this is a biography of Harry Golden. He may not be a household name, but perhaps he should be. Uh, you know, to say he was a writer really doesn't do him justice. How would you describe him? Well, he was definitely a writer, but um, I think the shorthand, best shorthand for him would be an activist. And even with that definition, he might not be what we think of as an activist. He was everywhere in his time, and uh, probably if he lived today, he would be a very prolific blogger. Right. You say he, he blogged before there was blogging. Uh, what do you mean? Well, he was uh, uh, around and extremely famous in the 50s and 60s into the 1970s a bit. And, of course, that was pre-Internet. Um, but he wrote in a style that bloggers would certainly recognize today. He was a master of the short essay form. He had a real gift for one-liners. Um, he wrote very well off the events of the day. And he was everywhere. Uh, when I talk to people about the book around the country, which I've been doing, uh, which is great fun, um, I've, I've often likened him to a sort of a Forrest Gump character. When any of the big news events of the day, if you looked around, Golden was there. Um, yeah, his writing style is really fun to read. Um, what kind of issues did, did he focus on? You mentioned events of the day. What kind of issues? Well, he came out of the Lower East Side uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So he really got on the map with writing nostalgic sort of feel-good stories about um, his childhood and uh, about what it was like to, to grow up in this extremely Jewish neighborhood. Um, so that got him on the map. He uh, went on to write um, probably what he was best known for, was writing about civil rights, uh, the race question, as it was called in his day, uh, class differences. He was, in a, in a real sense, a sort of a cultural matchmaker. So because he was introducing Jews to Gentiles and blacks to whites uh, in his writing, it it caused him to be uh, really at the heart of things when, for example, when Brown versus Board of Education uh, passed, you know, he's celebrating on the campus of a black college in, in the South. Um, he was at the major marches of the day, although he was rarely, uh, you know, literally a protester himself. One of my favorite tidbits about him, one of the myths that was always thrown around was, uh, turned out to be true. Uh, when when uh, NASA uh, sent up one of its most famous uh, missions, you know, he's sitting in the control room with with the NASA guys, um, he just knew people everywhere, and he loved to be at the heart of uh, of the action. And he's sort of larger than life. Uh, has there has there has there been anyone with as much reach as him since then? Well, that's a good question. You know, I'm not none come to mind. I mean, I think somebody uh, said it at a recent reading I did. Well, he's kind of like John Stewart, and that's not a bad comparison. Although he he certainly was not as um, physically attractive as Mr. Stewart. He's a, he's a short, fat, cigar-smoking, bourbon-drinking, middle-aged guy when he became famous. He was uh, 
probably similar to that kind of uh, late night host that we've come to rely on for um, news coverage, really. Uh, so in that sense, um, uh, that's what I, who I would liken him to. Although right, right. Um, his reach was was so great for the time. Uh, his his first book that really took off was a big surprise called Only in America. And that came out uh, in 57. And he uh, sold 250,000 copies in the first couple of days. And it just went on from there. He wrote more than 20 books. He published a very quirky little newspaper for many years called the Carolina Israelite. That's where that comes from in the title. And uh, had a syndicated newspaper column and was on late night TV often. So in that sense, I've, I have not thought of anyone else uh, of his uh, like, you know, who really crosses all those different mediums. So tell us a little bit about sort of the arc of his life. Um, he was an immigrant, um, grew up in New York, then moved to the South. Um, how did those experiences shape who he was? Well, there was a, an important thing that happened in between those two that caused him to move to the South. That, um, and this goes back to that sort of Forrest Gump thing. As a young man, so this would have been in the 1920s, he followed his uh, older sister onto Wall Street. Uh, Clara uh, was one of the first women to run a brokerage, modern-day brokerage on Wall Street. And he got into that in the wild days of the 20s, and he ran something that was called a bucket shop, which was uh, basically a situation where he's your broker, you give him money to buy shares at a certain price, and he uh, quietly holds on to that money, hoping the price will go down. He will therefore be able to pocket a profit you're not aware of. Uh, lots of people were doing this. It was a crazy, crazy time, uh, similar to you know the last sort of crazy round on Wall Street that, that we know. Long story short, he got busted, and he was sent to federal prison for uh, mail fraud, for sending materials through the mail about his business. In that era, unlike now, going to Wall Street and, and being arrested was, uh, was a, a, just a shameful crime. Going to prison was a shameful thing. So when he got out of prison, uh, he had a young family in New York. Uh, he was, the depression's still going on. He can't get a job. He's, he's you know, terribly shamed by this situation. So he changes his name, which had been at that point... Uh, Harry Goldhurst, and um, and moved south where he has some some contacts in the labor press and so forth, and he lands in Charlotte, which at about 1940 um, was a you know medium sized city had some sophistication but was obviously very different than what he was used to in in uh, New York City. So he gets there, he's welcomed by leading Jews in the community, um, and he starts this little newspaper, the Carolina Israelite, which initially is a kind of an interfaith, chatty little publication and very quickly comes to be what he would call a personal journal. And he is very quickly writing more and more about uh, the race situation in the South, which, of course, is really heating up after the war is over. He becomes gradually famous and he, he spends the rest of his life in Charlotte, which um, becomes known to much of America as the place where Harry Golden lives. Right. 
So in what way does um, Harry Golden's story change the way we think about the civil rights movement? Well, I think reading his life story uh, adds a few things to our understanding. And, and one of the things I wanted to accomplish with the book was uh, if uh, someone, particularly a younger person, reads only one book about America's civil rights movement, and it happens to be my book, that they would come away with a good uh, sense and overview of of uh, what we mean when we say the civil rights movement. And uh, that's almost, you know, tangential or not tangential, but a separate issue from, you know, some of Harry's life. So his lifespan and the work he did is a good way to sort of effortlessly learn about the movement. Um, I think what he shows us uh, foremost is how uh, individuals really did uh, make a difference in that movement. And I think they always do. But in that case, it was sort of more startlingly true, if you will. Um, I also think that his life shows uh, how, uh, sadly, um, a lot of work still to be done. Um, But I think that uh, the thing I've always taken to heart about him is that people learn and understand about activist movements, particularly in this country, most easily and most willingly when it's delivered to them by a good storyteller. Uh, And I think that's an important thing to understand now as, um, you know, I follow like everyone else does the discussion about should we slam our doors shut to immigrants coming to this country now. And I, I wish uh, Harry was here to comment on that, but I can imagine what he would say. But uh, I think his his way of talking about things with humor, some satire, uh, calling people on their ridiculous or absurd or mean-spirited views was very valuable. And people heard him in a way they wouldn't hear um, someone who was an academic or a preachier sort of speaker. And I guess the irony is that he was extremely popular in his time, and now he's much much less well-known. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, that's something that uh, people always ask me, and I, I think it's probably the single best question you can ask about Harry Golden in a way. Um, one reason is really the Internet. Uh, now, we can't disappear if we want to. I mean, I'll always be able to find this podcast somewhere. And I hope so. <laughs> um, I hope so, too. And, um, you know, of course, that wasn't an issue in his day. He changed his name. He moved. In fact, he never changed his name legally. He just said, here's my new name, and you could do that. The other thing that I think happens is, and this is something I didn't fully understand until I wrote the book, I think, by definition, an activist uh, gets shoved off the stage by the next wave. That's how one way you know somebody's an activist. They don't, uh, they don't go on and on in one cause. Now, they may stay in the public eye for other reasons, but if they're doing what they hope to do, the movement they're in outgrows them to some extent. And that, that happened to Harry. You know, in the 60s, you know, he stopped seeming like this extremely a radical viewpoint and started to seem extremely moderate. And as the as he aged and his Jewish readership was less interested in his nostalgic tales, so he kind of lost that uh, part of his popularity. And of course, the movement was becoming 
uh, much more militant. Golden, interestingly, and I, uh, I was fascinated by this, he was one of the first people to write about how the black churches would really lead the movement and would, would lead America into a new understanding of civil rights. He was absolutely right about that. He also predicted that the movement would become more militant over time and there would be less room for, um, you know, the, the moderate white Jewish activist. And that's, that contributed a lot to his becoming less known. It'll be interesting to see, you know, 40 years from now, are the people we're, we're very, we're very famous now. Will we hold on to them in a way? And I think it's harder for people to disappear now. You mentioned uh, his name change, and then um, you know the the, the, late in, the later in his life revelation that he had spent time in jail. It seemed like um, throughout his life he was revising his own story. How and why did he do that? That's a very kind way to put it. Um, <laughs> like most gifted storytellers, uh, he did not always let the facts get in the way of a of a really good tale. He would tailor it to the room. He could size up a room very well. He was a very busy speaker once he became famous. He talked all over the country, in fact, all over the world. Um, and one of the reasons he was so successful is he really had that ability. I think that comedians or, or evangelists have an odd group of bedfellows um, who can look out at a room and get the vibe and, and know sort of where to go to keep the audience uh, with him. He also uh, he recycled a lot of his material. If something was a hit, he'd keep using it. Um, if he told a famous story about something that happened in a big Presbyterian church where he was speaking in Charlotte and he was talking to a different faith group, he would change it to theirs. Um, and I, so that was a big part of his revision. Also, I think if we we all revise our stories. I mean, if we were all out there in such a visible way, God forbid, as Harry was, um, how we describe ourselves, our childhoods, our relationships, our triumphs, our failures, um, would certainly undergo some changes over time. But make no mistake about this. He was a con man. Um, part of his appeal for me is that he really is an unlikely hero. I think he did a lot of great things for the country. I think he uh, changed in a, in a way how, how commentary uh, is done. But um, he was not above, uh, he was first and foremost, I think, really a salesman. So, um, you know, that's, that's part of uh, the answer. I also think that uh, as his first book came out and hit the big time, Somebody sent, so this is in about 58, uh, somebody sent an anonymous letter to all the major papers in the country and said, you know, Harry Golden, who everyone loves and you're buying his book and by the dozen, is a jailbird. And it was this huge scandal on the front page of nearly every major newspaper in New York. It should have killed him right there. And in fact, it just made him more famous. Given that kind of ability to, to be resurrected, his his own um, life became more heroic in the telling. Let's talk a little bit about the subtitle, um, How Harry Golden Made Us Care About Jews, the South, and Civil Rights. Um, what did Jewishness mean to Harry Golden? Well, that's, that's a, the answer to that speaks a little bit to your previous question, which is um, 
it, it changed over the course of his life. He grew up in what would now be called, of course, an Orthodox household. Um, his father, he described as a Darwinian rationalist. Seeds were planted early in Harry to sort of be a Jew at heart uh, and, and, a, and a free thinker otherwise. He wasn't a terribly religious person, to say the least. Um, his son, of blessed memory, who just passed away about three weeks ago, Richard Goldhurst, who, without whom I could not have written this book, um, he was justifiably quite tough on his father. And he would say Harry uh, was Jewish when it suited him. Now, like a lot of us, as Harry aged, he became more interested in, you know, if you will, the spiritual side. But when you look at his correspondence, which is absolutely huge and largely housed in the University of North Carolina Charlotte Library, as well as the public library in Charlotte, um, you can see he's, he's thinking more deeply about religion, about what it means to be a Jew later in his life. Earlier, it was uh, kind of his stock and trade, to put it as, as crassly as possible. In what ways, you know, was, was Harry Golden a product uh, of living in the South for many years? And in what ways did he actually shape the South, kind of coming in from outside? Well, he used to say, the South made me a writer. And I love that line, and I think it's really true. Um, he was grateful to the South always for that. I think uh, if he had started in a larger city in the South, say Atlanta, he would never have made it. His newspaper wouldn't have made it. His his uh, kind of humor might not have worked as well. He was a big fish in a small pond in North Carolina, and that served him well. I think that it was a place that even though, you know, his Jewish neighbors and, and in fact, some of the national Jewish groups were often embarrassed by him. He could be he was a loose cannon and he would say things that embarrassed them, particularly in the south of that time where Jews generally worked very hard to be assimilated and were quite successful at that. He was just sort of a loud voice at the party. Um, but given that even given that he was welcomed by the Jewish community there. He was comfortable there. He was able to be both a celebrity and a regular guy, which uh, any celebrity can tell you is is probably um, hard to come by and sort of great. Um, I think that he changed the South in in a, a number of ways. He was obviously part of a movement that changed the South economically and socially and ethically, if that's the right term. Uh, but he, his biggest contribution was shining a light on the South and making the rest of the country aware of it. He was hard on some of the leaders uh, in the South. He would go after George Wallace, but he would also say, you know, this average person or that average person was really great, was uh, a decent person. Um, he had an ability to point out the real negatives of segregation and Jim Crow in the South while not condemning the entire uh, people. And I think that's very important. Um, he uh, understood that things were a little more complex than that. He, he had a good grasp of the uh, sort of economic disadvantages that had led the South to be in the situation it was in in the 40s and 50s. And as I say in the book, one of the fascinating things about him was his ability to 
as liberal as he was and as outspoken as he was about uh, liberal issues, um, he had a number of uh, friends who were extremely far right, outright racists, and he had a gift for compartmentalizing uh, those relationships and seeing uh, what a smart, well-read person had to offer, even if he or she had um, political opinions that you know were completely um, opposed to his. Uh, we, we've we've mentioned it uh, twice now, but I'd like to hear a little bit more. W- what is Only in America about? It's a fascinating uh, book. Well, yeah, it is a fascinating book. And as I said, he wrote more than 20 books, and most of them are these short essays drawn from the Carolina Israelite. And in, in his later books, he would add original material to the books, but they were the majority of the pages in any one of his books of essays were drawn from the paper. Only in America is... I'm not sure how long it is. I want to say it's well into the 200 pages. It's a series of short essays, and it's on almost any topic you can imagine. There's nostalgic Lower East Side, you know, going to buy a suit for your bar mitzvah and how you bargained for it in his childhood, which are you know hilarious stories about working as a hotel manager in one of his brother's hotels during the Depression years, um, his impressions of the South when he first got there, and really encountered that particular kind of segregation for the first time. He was absolutely stunned by that. He was a great student of history, very well read. He might write about Shakespeare. He might write about uh, ancient Greece. He really was, and, and that's really where the blogger sort of analogy comes up, is that if it interested him, uh, it was it was fodder. So that's really what Only in America is. It It did as well as it did, absolutely baffling the publishing industry. There was virtually no advertising for it. Um, He had a a good-sized following, a few thousand subscribers to his paper, but really uh, no one could understand why it took off the way it did. I think it's because uh, the topics are so varied that there was something for everyone. I think people really like short essay form. And I think he hit that right mix of needling people about social change, but not making them feel deeply shamed about uh, their part in in those things. Seems like uh, Harry Golden could could have done anything, uh, and for a while he did. But why do you think ultimately he was drawn to writing and journalism, uh, and that's the profession that you hold? So what drew you to this story? What drew me to his story? Yeah. Why did he Why did he spend his life uh, in writing and journalism? Given that he seemed like an all, he seemed to be uh, skilled in all sorts of manners. He could really have done anything. Um, so why did he choose that? And then why did you feel that he was a suitable subject for a biography? Okay. So two part question. Um, the first part of the question is something no one has asked me, and now I realize that's an absolutely excellent question. He was a salesman at heart. He might have, if his life had gone slightly differently, he might have stayed one and done very well. Uh, I think like a lot of writers, what drove him to it was reading. Um, If you're a book lover and you're a bookworm, which he was from a very early age, um, some part of your brain is always thinking either I could do this, I wish I could do this, maybe I could do this, I should try to do this. And I think that's sort of what got him going. Um, some of his early sales positions were for newspapers selling what we would now call advertorial copy, those sort of supplements that are 
inserted still in the few remaining newspapers in the United States. So he was around it. And, you know, I grew up in the newspaper business. Uh, I grew up in the 1960s in New England, and my mother was a newspaper publisher. So I grew up in that world. And I can say from personal experience, if that takes, it really takes. I mean, if you're around that at a young age, uh, there's really, there was no other world that had the same uh, kinds of, I don't know, stimulation, rewards. The fact that people would pay you to write was absolutely amazing. Um, Golden also uh, enjoyed the company of, I don't know, a slightly rougher element. And in those days, that's a lot of who, he had a lot of friends who were printers and who worked in the back shops of papers. And these were, um, you know, intelligent people, but um, they were kind of drinking buddy friends. And so he would go from, you know, uh, sitting down with, uh, you know, Edward R. Morrow to, um, you know, having a few rounds with the printers down the street. So that part was appealing to him. Um, of course, once he became successful as a writer, he was off to the races. That's what he was going to be. I don't think he ever you know, regretted that or looked back. He had said in a couple of places in his work that he might have been a labor organizer, might have been a union organizer. Um, and and I, I do think that's the one other thing he might have gotten into, just a couple more right turns or left turns somewhere uh, early on. Um, as for my uh, interest in him, as I, I say in the book, uh, I grew up reading him because my mother read him. And the story in our uh, house always was that she had worked for him. She grew up in Charlotte and uh, my mother was a fantastic storyteller. She could, she had that Southerner's gift of timing. She was very, very funny, very dry. And she, uh, like Golden, was not above adjusting the facts to make a story a little bit better. So I never actually believed that she had worked for him. I, I figured she probably met him. Um, in the course of researching this, long after she had died, um, I opened a folder of Golden's papers. I'm sitting in the special collections room in the library, University of uh, North Carolina, Charlotte. And there is a series of notebook uh, pages with my mother's handwriting and signed by her. So it was just one of those sort of moments where you don't know whether to laugh or cry. That, that certainly gave it more meaning for me. And as I worked on it, I came to realize she was very much influenced by him in the way she did business. And that's not a compliment. Uh, the way she wrote, how she viewed the newspaper business and ultimately passed a lot of that on to me. Uh, I think I'm quite strong in the short essay form and uh, writing about, um, you know, serious things in a slightly humorous way. And I think that's you know, the roots of that are reading Harry Golden when I was 10 years old. Well, Kimberly, you've taken up a lot of your time. So um, any parting thoughts you'd like to share and what are you working on next? Well, uh, parting thoughts, uh, I would say what I take away from this anyway, is uh, a, a great sense of comfort that one person, it's a cliche, but one person really can make a difference and that there is uh, a lot to be said for um, sort of relentlessly expressing your thoughts on an issue that you you feel is important. Uh, I think there's a lot of people out there now who have blogs and, and want to put their word out there. And I say, you go, just keep doing it. It has a lot of value now and in the future. 
if you look back at Harry Golden, you know what the average person was reading for a, for a number of years, and that's a very valuable thing. As to the next project, I'm, I'm looking to do uh, something that's uh, tied very much to migration, immigration, um, possibly about a very interesting and not well um, known wave of immigration of, of what are called Ulster Scots uh, from Northern Ireland to uh, the American South. We call them Scotch-Irish here, which is a term not used anywhere else. So um, that that might be my next uh, project, and I'm debating between nonfiction or fiction, and um, we'll see where it goes. Kimberly, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Carolina Israelite, How Harry Golden Made Us Care About Jews, the South, and Civil Rights, published this year by UNC Press. The author is Kimberly Marlowe Hartnett. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.